Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. One of the things that universities do struggle with is obviously the representation of, of Māori and Pacific in higher education, and even more so in, in postgraduate research, and even more so in, in academic positions. So I think it's something that, that institutions need to look at doing better, but also thinking about the way that they do it. Kia ora, no mai haramai kito tātou au hurihuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing Worlds, ko Clerk and Canon Dr. Taniela Lolohea is a chemistry lecturer at the Auckland University of Technology and an associate investigator with the McDiarmid Institute for Advanced Materials and Nanotechnology. He's kind of got two areas of research at the moment. One is about exploring how Pacific knowledge system-based projects can be used to encourage Pacific students in science. But first, what does he get up to in the lab? My research area is primarily around plasma technology, uh, surface coatings, and really interested in how we can control properties of surfaces and coatings. Here's something you might never have considered. All of the ways that plasma-based technology is used to make things. Plasma etching, plasma welding, plasma bonding and cross-linking. Using plasma to clean surfaces or make them sticky or sterilize them. The list goes on. About one-third of the steps involved in making microchips, for example, are plasma-based. Many parts of your phone, your car, your laptop, your camera, maybe even your clothes, water bottle and food packaging have been touched by plasma. Taniela is focused on one area, how plasma jet technology can be used to add thin, high-quality, specific-purpose coatings. For example, if you wanted to coat the screen of your phone, There are a lot of things to consider. You want your phone to be light, so you need a coating that's super thin, but it also needs to be transparent, electrically conductive, anti-reflective, and ideally, scratch-proof, tough, and water repellent. Now, it's not that your phone would get plasma put on it, it's that the plasma is being used to add this layer. It's a really good way to coat things because it's quick, you can upscale it really well, and it's, it's relatively repeatable depending on which technology you use. But to back up for a second, what is plasma? Yeah, so plasma is primarily ionised gas. I mean, so it's made up of um, a combination of ionised gas, electrons running around, free radicals running around, and I think it's about 99 point something of the universe is made up of plasma. The sun is a really good example of plasma. Lightning bolts are a really good example of plasma. And so, yeah, we come into, into contact or at least experience plasma in our day-to-day lives, definitely. We learn about the states of matter in school. Solid, liquid, gas. Well, plasma is the fourth state. And it's all about energy, right? You add energy to solids to turn them to liquids and add more to turn them to gas. Think heating ice up to water and then to steam. 
To make plasma, more energy is needed to strip electrons from the atoms of the gas. So then you have a collection of free electrons and positively charged atoms. And yet, it seems that it makes up around 99.9% .9 of the visible universe. Stars, solar wind, star nurseries, auroras, the upper part of our atmosphere, really hot flames. These are all natural sources of plasma. And of course, now we artificially make it. Not just for use in plasma TVs and neon lights, but also for all those ways it's used in manufacturing. Taniella is exploring the surface coating potential of a relatively new way of making plasma. The technologies that are commonly used are mostly vacuum-based plasmas, and these types of plasmas generally produce higher temperature plasmas, which can be non-advantageous for particular things that you want to put on a surface. And so what we're looking at are low-temperature plasmas, so we're talking about 25 to, to 60 degrees Celsius, that can be generated under atmospheric conditions and so in, in open space. And so this is really advantageous for things like medical devices. So you're working in the low temperature space, but what is high temperature in terms of plasma? What's the traditional kind of yeah, temperature? Yeah, so you're kind of talking anywhere upwards of 500 to, to thousands of degrees. Whoa, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so a lot of the time when people, when I tell people I'm working with plasmas, they always think, oh, like it's really dangerous and you must wear like a um, high temperature suit and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. You're working with the low key yeah, plasma. <laughs> real, relatively safe in comparison. Hmm. How does that actually work? So mm -hmm. you've got my phone and you want to cover it with a special coating mm -hmm. and as you say a very thin layer of coating. Mm -hmm. What's the process there? Yeah so there's two things that go on. So we generate the plasma so that's um, what we do by ionizing the gas. So once we have this plasma jet formed we'll introduce what we would use to produce the coating and so it would come first in a liquid form and then we'll generate an, an aerosol and then we'll inject the aerosol into the plasma and that aerosol will contain the material um, and it'll interact with the plasma, and then it'll deposit along that kind of plasma jet stream down onto the surface. One of the disadvantages is what you can actually put high temperature plasma deposited coatings onto. And so if you think about plastics, if you think about textiles, wools, you're automatically rejecting those as potential substrates when you're using high temperature plasmas. And so that's one of the advantages of, of our low temperature plasmas is we can technically deposit a coating onto, onto basically anything that you put on in front of it. We have found that the coatings do interact a little bit differently depending on what surface you are depositing onto, um, but this is something that's also really interesting to us. This aerosol would be whatever you want to make the coating out of, but if you were to just spray it onto the phone or whatever you want to coat, mm. it's not going to stick. So the plasma is essentially making it sticky. Essentially, and then we add on a bunch of different technical things that we want to put on top of that. So can we control different types of features of the coatings? Can we control the density? Can we control the porosity, the thickness, the roughness? These types of things that we're really interested in getting into to understanding how we can actually control those particular types of features. And as an end user, what is the advantage there? I think the advantage is, is being able to give manufacturers the tailorability or flexibility of saying what exactly what they want in a coating. So for example, if you came up to me and you were like, I want the coating to be 100 nanometers thick, but I also want it to be really porous would know what buttons to push, what factors to change in order to make that particular type of coating that you want 
possible. But using the same precursor, another user could want a, a, a whole different type of coding using the same material. So we'll be able to, with our understanding, change those kind of factors and, and, and plasma controls to get them what they want in terms of a surface coding. And, I mean, there's a wide range of things that you can do with surface mm -hmm. coatings, right? You can make them porous, you mm -hmm. can make them presumably strong or soft, or what kind of things would people be looking for? Yes, I think most of the stuff that we've talked about with, with a lot of end users and, and researchers has been around um, controlling porosity and density, um, thickness of the layer. So uh, we've got someone that wants something that's 10 nanometers thick and then somebody that wants something that's 4 microns thick. So they're kind of vastly different thicknesses. Mm, but with the 10 same nanometers material. is yeah. <laughs> tiny. It's really small. <laughs> and so these are kind of really, really interesting fundamental um, experiments around them but with a, a very quick end user. So from, from fundamental understanding all the way to end user is quite a quick process in, in what we're doing. Mm. Are you working with different collaborators that say, this is my sticky problem with regards to surface coding? Can you help? Pretty much. So we've got, I think we have around eight or nine projects kind of on the run. And out of all of them, there's... We have collaborators from different universities and even companies for each of those projects. And so we're always trying to connect. Um, we're trying to engage with industry with some of the projects, but also engage with researchers from outside of chemistry. So we've got one of the projects, we've got uh, physics people in it, engineering people, uh, people from biology and these types of things here. The potential then is wide. Essentially, Taniella is a problem solver for others who need a particular type of surface coating. Maybe it needs to be a strong barrier, dense and thick. Maybe it needs to be porous to allow gases to get through. Maybe it needs to be permanently antimicrobial for use in medical settings. He has a few key areas he's focusing on. So we're really interested in getting to that, into the medical area of, of research and, and applied um, medical devices. But we're also looking at kind of sensor materials and really just interesting stuff. And so biological structures aren't really known to, to stick very well in liquid form and then applied to a surface and then dried out. And that kind of process almost changes what they're like in liquid form versus a coating form. And so we're really interested in can we keep a lot of the properties that we like when we see them in liquid form as a coating. What do you mean by biological structures then? Yeah, so anything, we're really interested in anything from peptide structures down to amino acids actually as well, into proteins and, and complex proteins. And so we had this really cool project actually on um, trying to improve the growth of radish seedlings. And what we did was we, we deposited milk uh, and we thought that milk was a good idea because we had fats, amino acids, proteins inside of milk. And we thought that these were really good things for if it's good for a human, we thought it would be good for a seed as well. And so we deposited milk as a coating onto the radish seedling. And so that's one of the projects that are kind of underway at the moment. Mm. So underway, so you, did it work? Did yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Oh, it did? Yeah, yeah. Um, we saw um, improvement of the milk deposit coatings. And what we need to do now is basically prove that it wasn't a fluke. So we had a repeat of four but now we want to kind of increase our repeats to, I think, like 15 or 20 seeds per a variable. But for that project, we're actually looking at trying to do different things as well. So 
can we put different types of coatings on there? Are different types of coatings better than others, like ammonia? One of the things with fertilizers is that you kind of just throw it on the on the soil. It's almost like a, a Hail Mary in terms of trying to fertilize your plant. Um, but if you can imagine the, the, the reduced wastage by being able to deposit the material directly onto the seed without having it all over the soil and leaching into our waterways, this is something that's not only good for the plant, but also good for the environment and waterways in general. And beyond the projects he's working on right now, Taniela has been learning about future possible applications for this low temperature plasma tech. Yeah, so, so conductive polymers are interesting because they're lightweight and they're, they're flexible. And so if you think of a very lightweight film, such as a conductive polymer that responds to you touching it, you can very much imagine something like depositing a coating directly onto your skin, for example. So to have a mobile phone that's truly mobile because it's, it's stuck to your hand. I've seen some really cool pictures of wearable electronics. Um, and so that's, a, that's kind of a, a really nice developing area in terms of conductive polymers. So how does that work it's not it's not a it's a it was a artificial image and so it wasn't a real thing but it's kind of where a lot of people envision wearable electronics will go but obviously for if you want to wear something it has to be relatively lightweight and so you don't want to wear something that's heavy like your phone strapped to your hand <laughs> yeah. so you can imagine like that's where a conductive polymer would come in really handy when you touch your mobile phone you're actually disrupting a lot of the circuitry on that particular screen and so that's where the response of uh, the phone knows that you're touching in the top right corner or the bottom left corner. And so this is where conductive polymers can replace those types of technologies. It conducts electricity and responds or st- is stimulated by a disruption in, in that electrical circuitry um, when you touch it. We head up to the lab to have a look at the instrument. Taniello points out the different parts of the setup to me, which are kind of scattered across two benches connected by wires. And so you've kind of got um, your, we call it a radio frequency pulsed power supply. And then we move here, we've kind of got our, our print head. And then we've got two inlets, so two gas inlets. So one is just a pure dry gas, and then the other one is the gas that carries the aerosol. And they kind of intermix inside the print head, and then you'll see a plasma jet protrude out the bottom. And so that'll carry both the material and the plasma. The radio frequency pulse power supply is what's used to create the plasma in this setup. At the end of the bench are big gas tanks. Argon and helium are what Taniella mostly uses. And yeah, it's in bits. I mean, it's not like I've seen a plasma jet injector before, but I thought it would look something like a 3D printer. It's very yeah. different to what I imagined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, the, the one in, at the University of Auckland is very much more contained and it, it's in kind of like a big square box and their one has a lot more organization of their wires yeah <laughs> my one is definitely the cowboy version um, but i think it's the cooler cowboy version <laughs> and a heap of pliers on the bench yes. just for the adjustments yeah small adjustments and small cuts here and there but yeah i think the advantage of having it all open like this is that you can visualize what's happening but also you can get an appreciation for the different components at work. So when you have it all kind of encased and you, you, you don't really make those attachments between the power supplies working here, the gas flows working here, the liquid flows working here, and you can get that real impression of 
the moving parts of, of the plasma jet printer. Daniela did his PhD at the University of Auckland and still collaborates with colleagues over there. Back in the office, he explains that the practical problem solving is part of what attracted him to this area of research. I always like to tinker with things. I always like to make and produce my own prototypes. I like to design stuff as well. And so a lot of the, the work I like to design myself. And so I feel like I was kind of like an engineer trapped in the science world at times. <laughs> but you've got a whole other separate sphere of research that you're interested in. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's something that I've recently gotten into, and more so in the last year, is understanding Indigenous knowledge, particularly in, in the Pacific Islands. There's, there's two ways I like to think about it, is there is a deep and rich Indigenous knowledge in the Pacific Islands, but then there's adapted Pacific knowledge when they came to, to New Zealand and things they had to adapt to and find wouldn't work. That worked in the Pacific, but didn't work in New Zealand, and, and how did they adapt to it? And I... I'm very cautious of using the word Pacific science because I think that kind of restricts the relational aspect of it. And because I think for, for Pacific people particularly, relationships are really important, but also their knowledge and the way they produce knowledge is also different and even communicate it and, and translate it from generation to generation. And so a lot of knowledge isn't um, written down in books in, in the Pacific, but it's passed from generation to generation. So there's, there's stuff that my ancestors passed down onto to my parents and then my parents passed down onto me that probably the next Tongan family wouldn't have known about or, or have a different version of it. And so at times there's, there's very like adapted knowledge that comes from the same tree, I guess. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I'm really interested in exploring how Pacific knowledge systems can be used to encourage Pacific students coming through their undergraduate and thinking about postgraduate research to be excited about. Because I think a lot of the time, research projects that are offered, it's hard for Pacific people to see themselves in those projects if they can't relate to it a lot of the time. And so what I thought was, why can't we give them projects that have deep roots in where they're from, right? And so if you can give a project that, that somebody can see themselves in, it almost makes them more motivated and more encouraged to, to actually participate in, in postgraduate research, I think. So, yeah, that's kind of where my my motivation a lot comes from. Mm. And is that motivation born out of your own experience? Yeah, so I remember when I was just... Well, I did not know about PhDs or or even the honours degree at the end of my... I only knew about it in, in, at the end of my third year. Um, when I went to go pick a project, there's like a list of all these projects, and I think I, I thought through and I was like, oh, none of these apply to me. I don't really find any of these interesting. So I almost didn't actually apply to, to actually do honours or PhD because the projects I, I don't find any interest in. And I remember that my supervisor at the time gave a lecture on explosive TNTs. And I thought, OK, maybe I can get on with, with explosive TNT stuff. And then I went and talked to him. And then we came up with this whole different project. But I think that initial kind of jump would have been a lot easier if I saw a project that I was genuinely interested in. And I think it's about providing those projects for the students. How are you going about this then? Yeah, so I'm definitely taking my time um, going out there and talking to, to other Pacific researchers that are um, in the science and engineering world, both in universities and institutions, but also in industry. 
And then at the same time, alongside that, I'm also talking to Pacific people in general. And so what kind of knowledge systems were they exposed to? What was cool about um, when they were growing up in the islands? What kind of things did they do that they'd never thought about that was actually really, really smart? The idea is to come out with a set of projects in the end? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that is different about Indigenous knowledge is that it's very much community-led and end-user-led rather than the other way around. And so what's commonly seen in academia is that I've got all this knowledge and I, I can answer your problems. But the actual process of doing that, I feel, won't work for, for Pacific people. And so if we flip it the other way around and say, Pacific people come to, to research and say, I have this problem, can you help me solve it? And so we come together as a group to, to come up with a solution that is tailored to that particular problem. We've been talking about how your personal experience has shaped what you're doing with your research and also what you're doing with your teaching. Mm. Can you share a little bit more about that? your personal experience, mm. like where you come from, how your journey in science went in terms of negative and positive experiences. Yeah, yeah no, so I, uh, both my parents are Tongan. Um, I was born in Rotorua and, and went to Hamilton Boys High School then, and then came up to Auckland to, to do university. Um, and so I did a BSc. And I think a lot of the negative experiences came from your kind of stereotypical perspective of a Pacific person in an institution like a university. And so one, it's a rarity to see. The numbers are increasing though, which is really great to see. But at that time, I think we started off with good numbers. So we had about, I'd say, maybe 50 Māori and Pacific students that were that I knew really well in chemistry in the first year. And by the third year, there was about four or even three of us. And so the numbers drop off really dramatically. What Taniela is talking about here is well documented in the stats on tertiary participation rates and in a number of publications over the last few years. And the numbers just get smaller as you go up the academic ladder. A snapshot of universities in 2017, according to analysis of Ministry of Education data, showed that just 1.7% of academic positions were filled by Pacific Islanders. And this dropped again when they looked at professors and deans to 0.5%. From 2018 census data, Pacific Islanders make up 8.1% of New Zealand's population. And one of the things is the interactions that you have with your classmates, but also the interactions that you have with your lecturers. And there were a bunch of different occasions where I kind of had, like, oh, you know, that felt like they stereotyped me before they even got to know me. It was just the other day I was talking to one of my Tongan friends and he remembered his first day in chemistry. And when he first walked in, he was telling me that the lecturer asked him, are you in the right place? Like, you know, and, and, and it was in front of the whole class. You know, it was, <laughs> it was like, are you sure you're in the right place? And it was almost like a, you know, you wouldn't have asked that to somebody else that walked in, but to, out of a class of, I don't know, that class was probably about 200 people. You know, you see a student come in, a little bit late, I guess, but to, to then ostracise him on top of that and, and ask him if he's in the right place. It doesn't seem like it's something that was just a random person. It seems like it was built off that kind of stereotype and prejudice that that person, because he looked Pacific, didn't belong in that science class. Yeah, and so it's experience like these, and it's little things. And so a lot of the time it isn't such hard and out there examples, but it's sometimes just little things like 
um, somebody asks you a question and then when you start answering it, somebody walks in and they're like, actually, don't worry, like, I'll, I'll get the answer of this person, that kind of thing. So it's little things that, that happen that you're just like, oh, you know, that felt pretty bad. And, and I think to some degree you can say, oh, you know, don't worry. Like, I'm really blasé as well, so I'm pretty, like, chill about a lot of things. But to say, oh, don't worry about it or shrug it off, which is kind of a normal response, is, is something that is difficult to do because it's it's easy to say that around friends and say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. But, you know, at night when you when you go to sleep and it's all quiet, that's when you start thinking about those kinds of things. And so getting up again in the morning, you have to go through that whole experience again and, and thinking like, oh, this person won't want to team up with me because, you know, they think this of me. You know, it starts to kind of roll over and build up over time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, but, you know, we can only start from, from where we stand right now, so, yeah. A recent paper, published in the Journal of the Royal Society of New Zealand, shared experiences from 43 current or past Māori and Pacific postgraduate students in STEM. Some felt that they had been used in superficial and unethical ways by universities, including box-ticking exercises when it came to applying for funding. Some also reported feeling that they were prevented from being their authentic selves, and they were expected to check their identities at the door before entering the lab. One of the things that, that I do like to do is, is share my experience. And I think this is one of the things that, that are classical for New Zealanders as well, is not talk about things, you know. And I think it's, it's helpful to talk about your experience because the person sitting next to you could be going through the same thing but be thinking, this is only me, no one else's experience, this kind of thing. But you see someone else talking about their experiences, and if you can relate, then you kind of think, actually, this is a person that I feel comfortable talking to. And it's about creating that culture, not only in the classroom, but for institution altogether. It's about creating a culture that, that students can feel safe to explore. One of the questions that I ask is, um, are you a, a Pacific researcher in science, or are you a researcher in science who just happens to be Pacific. And I'd say 95% of the time, the response is I am a researcher who happens, who just happens to be Pacific. And I found that because of this overwhelming response, I had to, to analyze a bit deeper. And I thought, why are they always responding in this way? And, and the way I think about it is that there's a disconnect between science and bringing yourself into that world and I think this is particularly important for Pacific people because there's not many role models out there for us to feel comfortable in science and to be able to bring our culture to science and to feel that it's an important process to bring our culture in science and so I thought that these particular it was really sad to me actually is that um, they answered this because they couldn't, they feel like they can't bring themselves to their job or to their work. Um, and it's almost like a detachment of the two worlds, is that you're Pacific, but you're also a scientist. And they don't intermix because they don't fit into each other's worlds. And I thought that that was quite sad. And so it was almost like they were unaware that they couldn't actually bring the two worlds together because of that kind of process of having to disconnect their their own personal self from when they come into the science room or when they conduct science. Hmm. How would you answer that question? I would have answered it the same. Yeah, so I would have answered it that I'm a, a researcher in science who just happens to be Pacific. Hmm. 
And I think it's a narrative that, I, that I'm on a journey to try and change for new and endeavouring researchers and that are coming through that are Pacific. It is um, different for me to do this, but I think, I always think to myself, like, if not me, then who, you know? And so that I am fortunate to be in this position and I think it would be almost a waste for me not to take advantage of it and, and actually help someone else come into this position. And a lot of people that I do see come through just fall through the cracks in that pipeline from high school all the way to, to becoming an academic. There's a lot of holes in there. and. That's how I think about it. And so for Pacific people, it's like there's more holes than the typical person because of the way institutions are set up. What is deemed successful? How do you make a successful student? You know, how do you create a culture in the classroom where these particular students are comfortable enough to express themselves and actually try and learn and ask questions and not be like fuck a martyr to ask a question in front of a class because Nine times out of ten, nobody else in that class will actually know the answer to the question, so... For yourself, do you think there'll ever be a time where you move more towards that first answer, where you are a Pacific science researcher? Mm. I think so. I think I'm, I'm really optimistic about being able to, to truly answer that in that way. I think at the moment where I stand is, it's, it's almost like sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. But each day to day I'm kind of feeling more confident in, in myself to be able to bring my culture to, to work and not leave it at the door. Um, and so I think maybe ask me in 10 years and I might have a different answer, but for now I'd probably honestly say that I was a researcher in science who just happens to be Pacific. Hmm. Thanks to Dr. Taniela Lolohea of the Auckland University of Technology. This episode was produced by me, Claire Cannon, with editing help from Liz Garten. Thanks also to assistant producer Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you want to come and say hi, we are on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.